Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, Joshua, chapters 20 and 21. We just began to talk about Joshua, chapter 20, last week. The subject being the cities of refuge, also called the sanctuary cities. And I framed it by showing to you the parallels between the God principle and pattern of the sanctuary city as compared to the bosom of Abraham. And we're going to delve a bit more today with that, since without doubt, this probably opened up as many questions as it did bring answers. You know, but in some ways, that's what Torah class is for. To get us to see things in God's Word that perhaps challenges our Christian traditions, while at the same time solidifying our faith in the God of Israel and His Son, our Messiah. You know, what a different world it opens up to us when we begin to look at the Holy Scriptures within the framework of God-established patterns. Rather than trying to reason within ourselves or within a church council over why God did something in a certain way and then balancing that with our current cultural ideas of fairness and morality. If we can only get used to this idea of the Torah being that divine vehicle that announces to us the God patterns of His character, His universal principles, His will, His plans for mankind, then what we need to be looking for in studying the Bible is this. What pattern is being followed in any given situation? Find the pattern and that will answer the question of why. Thus, regarding Abraham's bosom as this mysterious spiritual place that's neither heaven nor hell, but is a pleasant place, it's intended for the souls of the righteous dead, we find upon reading the Holy Scriptures concerning the cities of refuge the pattern that they were following in establishing these cities of refuge in Canaan. Now, let me say that another way. Abraham's bosom was the original spiritual reality that was created way before men ever contemplated the cities of refuge. Abraham's bosom was the God-created pattern that the cities of refuge merely followed, not the other way around. The spiritual is always established first. And then the earthly model, if there is one, is created to emulate it as much as is possible considering the very limited ability of anything physical to mimic anything spiritual. Now, it's probably not entirely accurate to say that any one of God's patterns or His principles is more important than another. But for the sake of our understanding of the Father and His instructions to us, some of His patterns are, practically speaking, more critical, more critical for us to grasp than some of the others. And first and foremost, to my way of thinking, 
is that the, the pattern that God established in that he divides, elects, and separates stands right at the top. Okay. From the beginning, the Lord established a winnowing process, if you would, that would eventually lead to this entity that the Bible calls the kingdom of God. This process was not to be brought about, by the way, by universal inclusion, but rather by careful and well-defined exclusion. The kingdom of God is a members-only club that has the narrowest of gates to enter. And yet, it establishes the broadest of barriers to intruders or pretenders. This winnowing process of the Lord eventually reducing the entire world's population to a remnant of people who love Him and trust Him and are obedient only to Him I label as the God pattern of dividing, electing, and separating. Now perhaps... The next most critical pattern necessary for our understanding of the Word of God is embodied in what I've labeled as the reality of duality. That is, the physical processes and protocols and procedures, rituals, observances, laws that we find in the Bible are direct parallels of spiritual realities that have existed since eternity past. The wilderness tabernacle was a very limited earthly model of God's heavenly dwelling place. The Levite priesthood was a very limited earthly model of God's spiritual servants, angels, cherubim, and their hierarchy as established in heaven. And the cities of refuge are a very limited earthly model of a spiritual place of safety for those who love the Lord. And at the same time, these earthly cities demonstrated a central part of God's plan of redemption for humankind. Therefore, we're going to continue today to look closely at these cities of refuge that the Lord had ordered set up in the promised land. And before we continue reading in Joshua, let's read what I wanted to read last week, but we ran a little too short on time. Numbers, chapter 35, verses 9 through 29. So open your Bibles to Numbers, chapter 35. Numbers, chapter 35, which is page 193 in the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read from verses 9 through 29. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you are to designate for yourselves cities that will be cities of refuge for you, to which anyone who kills someone by mistake can flee. These cities are to be a refuge for you from the dead persons next of kin who might otherwise avenge his kinsman's death by slaying the killer prior to his standing trial before the community. In regard to the cities you are to give, there are to be six cities of refuge for you. You are to give three cities east of the Jordan, three cities in the land of Canaan. 
they will be cities of refuge. These six cities will serve as a refuge for the people of Israel as well as for the foreigner and the resident alien with them. So that anyone who kills someone by mistake may flee there. However, if he hits him with an iron implement and thus causes his death, he's a murderer. A murderer must be put to death. Or if he hits him with a stone in his hand big enough to kill somebody and he dies, he's a murderer. A murderer must be put to death. Or if he hits him with a wooden utensil in his hand capable of killing someone and he dies, he's a murderer. A murderer must be put to death. The next of kin avenger is to put that murderer to death himself. Upon meeting him, he's to put him to death. Likewise, if he shoves him out of hatred or intentionally throws something at him causing his death or out of hostility, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, then the one who struck him must be put to death. He's a murderer. And the next of kin avenger is to put the murderer to death upon meeting him. But suppose he shoves him suddenly, but without hostility, or throws something at him unintentionally, or without seeing him, being his enemy, or seeking to harm him, he throws a stone big enough to cause death, and the person dies. Then the community is to judge between the one who struck him and the next of kin avenger in according with these rules, and the community is to save the killer from the next of kin a next of kin avenger. The community is to return him to the city of refuge to which he fled. <clears throat> and he's to live there until the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil dies. But if the killer ever goes beyond the limits of the city of refuge he fled to, and the next of kin avenger finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger kills the killer, he won't be guilty of that man's blood. Because he must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the killer can return to the land he owns. These things shall constitute your standard for judgment throughout all your generations, wherever you live. The first thing to understand is that what occurs in Joshua 20 officially establishing the cities of, of refuge and making them operational was ordered of Moses by God out in the plains of Moab uh, during the wilderness journey as it was nearing its end. And naturally, verse 10 of Numbers 35 says that this is all to happen, establishing these cities, after you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. So, Understand, there, there is an accusation that floats around sometimes when discussing these verses that Joshua was late in establishing the cities of refuge. But the fact is, it was just now time to occur. They were finally in a position to do it. So let's go to Joshua 20 now and read Joshua chapter 20. We're going to read all of it, page 263 in your complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Yahshua, Tell the people of Israel, select the cities of refuge about which I spoke to you through Moses. So that anyone who kills someone by mistake, uh, by mistake and unknowingly may escape there. 
they will serve as refuges for you from the next of kin avenger. He's to flee to one of those cities, stand at the entrance to the city gate, state his cause to the city leaders. Then they will bring him into the city with them, give him a place so that he may live among them. If the next of kin avenger pursues him, they're not to hand him over to the killer, uh, over, hand over the killer to him because he struck his fellow community member unknowingly and had not hated him previously. So he will live in that city until he stands trial before the community until the death of the high priest who is in office at that time. When that time comes, the killer may return to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in the Galil, Galilee, in the hills of Naphtali, Shechem in the hills of Ephraim, Kiriat Arba, that Hebron, in the hills of Judah. Beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they selected Bethzer in the desert, on the plateau, out of the tribe of Reuben, uh, Ramot in Gilead, out of the tribe of Gad, Golan in Bashan, out of the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities selected for all the people of Israel and for the foreigner living among them so that anyone who kills any person by mistake could flee there and not die at the hand of the next of kin avenger prior to standing trial before the community. Now, although the complete Jewish Bible opens this chapter with the English words, Adonai said to Yahushua, more literally, this says, and Yehovah spoke unto Yahashua. Now, the Hebrew word used here for spoke is deber, D-I-B-B-E-R, deber. And though most generally translated into English as said or spoke, it carries this sense of driving forward. In other words, Deber is something said with power and authority and determination. This isn't pleasant conversation among friends. It's not a suggestion. It's not a friendly reminder. Okay? So whenever we see this phrase in the Bible, and Yehovah Deber, Yehovah spoke to thus and so, what follows is always a very serious and sober command or oracle of God to which we need to pay very special attention. And this strong command of the Lord to Joshua is that now, right now, Israel is to establish those cities of refuge that had been ordained some years earlier when Moses was still alive. And immediately following, we are given essentially a shortened version of what we just finished reading in Numbers 35, the purpose of the sanctuary cities. And that purpose is as a safe harbor for those who are being pursued by the blood avengers, also called the next of kin avengers, but in Hebrew, Goel Hadam. Goel Hadam. Now let's be clear that the concept of relatives taking what today we would call vigilante action against a person who's killed a family member was a common custom in the world of that day on a near universal level. Okay. The concept was based 
in tribalism, whereby justice was accomplished either by the family in question or in a few cases by uh, tribal elders. Now understand, the very essence of tribalism is that each family or clan or tribe is kind of a social entity unto itself. And the tribal laws that have been established were, generally speaking, designed for the family or the clan to be the accusers, the prosecutors, the judges, and if necessary, the executioners. Okay. For us in the West, that seems so primitive and uncivilized. But in fact, that's not only how it was, that's how it still is in much, if not the majority, of the world today. Okay. Due to the rise of Islam, 9-11, and our subsequent wars that we're fighting against terrorists in the Middle East, we've suddenly found ourselves today face-to-face -face with forms of tribal justice that sickens us. That we probably thought, in our Western way of thinking, we're all but extinct. Right? But are perfectly normal and usual among billions of people on this planet. Most of these things that we see happening in the news or on those grisly internet videos, we're going to actually find in the Bible. Okay? That's why I like to use Iraq to explain at times what we're seeing here in Joshua. Now, the idea of a holy place being legally recognized as a place of sanctuary may well have its roots in the Middle East, but it's been part of Western civilization right up until this very day. Okay. Most of us are familiar with the idea of churches being seen as sacrosanct and having been traditionally viewed as a place where not only an accused, but sometimes even a convicted person might find refuge from his pursuers, including the police. Okay. And as we have become a more urban society, that right has been pretty much negated now. Okay. But even so, we may find in instances that local law authorities are somewhat reluctant to go into a house of worship to arrest somebody if the church authorities ask them not to, or if in some cases they even behave as their protectors. In the Bible, the purpose of sanctuary was only for a person who had shed the blood of another human. It wasn't for any other crime or action. Thus, when we hear in Iraq of mosques, Islamic houses of worship, being off-limit sanctuaries, we're always outraged when it's invariably men with blood on their hands, those we call terrorists, that openly rush to hide there, fully expecting safety. And we aren't necessarily startled at the idea of a criminal huddling inside of a sanctuary, but we are upset with the notion of a wanton killer being protected. But in fact, what we're witnessing in Iraq is much closer to the biblical perspective than any other we've likely witnessed in our lives. 
Okay. Our problem is that in Islamic law, what the Bible describes and what we think of as murder is in many cases in their religion, religiously sanctioned killing among tribal or sect members. So it's considered legal and justified. Therefore, the perpetrators are deemed worthy of protection in a holy place. Now, the Numbers and Joshua definition of just who may seek sanctuary in a Levitical city of refuge is somebody who has killed another human being, but it was without premeditation. It was without malice. Maybe it was just in reasonable self-defense. And in many cases, it was purely accidental or caused by some uh, fairly moderate degree of negligence. A high degree of negligence, a high degree of negligence in the Bible was considered murder. Okay. Even so, it was the customary duty of a family member to seek retribution for the death of a relative at the hand of another, no matter what the circumstance except as the result of judicial punishment. Notice that in no way has the Bible outlawed blood revenge. It was legal. There was no punishment for carrying it out. However, the Torah did put limitations on it. The primary one being that the killer, if not guilty of intentional homicide did have a place he could go and be safe permanently <laughs> provided he could get there before the goel caught up to him and he had to stay in that city of refuge now as humans you know it's really near to impossible for us not to ask why God allowed such a system to exist among his people in many ways, as we read it, it kind of feels like playing the lottery with human life. After all, the perpetrator had to be fortunate enough that a city of refuge was near enough that he could get there faster than the blood avenger could locate him and kill him. And then this idea that he was safe inside, but then just outside the city walls the blood avenger could destroy him. So, once again, in order to understand, we've got to seek the pattern. Of what's behind all this? Now, I've already explained that the primary God pattern present here is Abraham's bosom. But there's another one that also plays a significant role in this. It's the pattern that the spilling of human blood unto the holy land makes the land unclean. And the only way for that defilement to be cleansed is for atonement to be made. The law is that when a man commits murder, the only atonement available is that the perpetrator must be killed. That is, the perpetrator's own blood atones for the spilled blood of the victim. But understand, here's the key. It's not that the criminal's blood atones for himself. 
It's that the atonement of His blood is made on behalf of the land. Blood illegally shed on the land pollutes the land. And the polluted land defiles the people living on the land. And since God dwells in the tabernacle on that same land, there is extreme danger that the land will become so polluted that God will no longer dwell among his people. I mean, do you see this slippery slope now and how all of these things begin to tie together? Therefore, even though a person might accidentally kill another, Nonetheless, human blood has been spilled and now the land is polluted. The something has to be done. Blood, spiritually, can be for only one purpose. Because it's so precious. Atonement. To spill blood even accidentally is a terrible thing because life is in the blood. Not rhetorically, but literally. Since God's laws are immutable, the killing of the perpetrator, even if it was accidental, atones for the defilement of the land caused by the blood of the victim. Yet the Lord saw fit to show mercy on the perpetrator, provided it was not murder, and the result was the establishment of these off-limits safe places called the the cities of refuge. Now, let's untangle this a little bit because some of you may be sensing where this is leading. Others of you may not yet. Consider this. Equate the spilling of blood with sin. Any sin. We know that under the Levitical sacrificial system, there is forgiveness of sin because it's clearly stated over and over and over again in the Torah. Yet, even though there is atonement and forgiveness, there is some element of guilt that stays with the sinner. There are various terms in the Bible used to explain this vague and difficult concept such as the guilt of the conscience, or the guilt nature, or the guilt of the spirits. And then another word that's perhaps used to refer to this is Iniquity. In other words, just like St. Paul struggles to explain that there is this kind of righteousness that obedience to the law brings us and that God wants us to have, that it's sort of a physical, earthly, fleshly, here and now righteousness. But it, it has its limits. It has its limits. Yet, there's another kind of righteousness that man cannot attain. It must simply be imputed to him. He can't attain it. He can't purchase it. He can't merit it by works or deeds. He can't even merit it by obedience to the law. It's a kind of righteousness that is so high and so perfect that only one man ever has displayed it. Yeshua of Nazareth. And this man was also God. 
And by trusting in the perfect and the highest righteousness of that man, we are said to wear his righteousness like a garment. This garment is a full-body garment that covers every aspect of our sinful imperfection. This kind of righteousness knows no bounds, has no limits. This kind of righteousness is a spiritual, heavenly righteousness that's durable for all eternity. Even the guilt of the conscience, the guilt nature, the guilt of the spirit, or our iniquity is removed as though it never was. So when a man sinned before Yeshua appeared on this earth, all he apparently could attain was that first kind of righteousness that I spoke of. An earthly kind. Desirable for sure. But not of the spiritual variety, so to speak. And it left, that kind of righteousness left some unfinished business between man and God. Now let's follow that path a little bit further. We're told, are we not, that all men have sinned that come short of the glory of God. So when the perpetrator of manslaughter killed that man, it was sin no matter how it happened. There was also blood defilement of the land. What was to be done about it all? Well, if that man was innocent of murder, he could run to the safety of a city of refuge and be held there such that this blood avenger couldn't destroy him. But he had to stay there as a captive indefinitely. Why? Well, first off, he was guilty of sin. He was responsible for blood defilement of the land. Even though he could make, for sure, a proper sacrifice and also be given that earthly kind of forgiveness and restoration and righteousness that obeying the law merited, there was still some unfinished business that lingered. He could not go totally free. If he was to try to free himself prematurely, by leaving that safe place, then that goel, the blood avenger, could track him down and kill him. So for his own protection, he was trapped there at one of the cities of refuge until the high priest died. Then some kind of unexplained atonement seemed to happen and the sinner was now judged fully free. The man who died in righteousness pre-Jesus, the man who indeed was a sinner but had attained that earthly kind of righteousness like the perpetrator of manslaughter was quickly ushered into a safe spiritual place when he died. A place that the Bible labels as Abraham's bosom. He was held captive there for his own good. This place was off limits to the destroyer. It was off limits 
to Satan, who, by the way, had otherwise every legal right to possess that man for his sin, do what he wants with him. Yet, a captive that man did remain, even if it was in Abraham's bosom. He did not have full freedom until the, pri the high priest had to die and thus make atonement of some mysterious spiritual kind for him. Jesus, our high priest, died. And thus he set the captives of Abraham's bosom fully free. They could leave. They could go and be in eternity with God. Just as the blood avenger was legally forbidden on earth from ever again pursuing the manslaughter perpetrator after the high priest died, so it is that the righteous dead held captive in Abraham's bosom could now be released. And the evil one legally prohibited from ever pursuing him again. Now that's freedom. Now that all of this has been fulfilled at the foot of the cross, whatever Abraham's bosom was, and we sure don't get much definition of it, it's empty. Even though as believers we die as forgiven sinners, we don't make a stop there because our high priest's already died. We don't have to wait for another one. We just go straight to the full freedom of heaven, pardon in hand. And no place is a danger to us because God legally forbids Satan from interfering in our lives ever again. And right here in Joshua, in the establishment of the cities of refuge, is a physical demonstration of the spiritual reality of God's plan of salvation for mankind. That heavenly plan was being made known long before the Ruach HaKodesh ever visited Mary. In chapter 20, beginning in verse 7, we get a list of the six cities that were given up by the tribes to the Levites to be used as their sanctuary cities. Three of them were in Canaan. Three more were across the Jordan to the east. Kadesh in the Galilee was one. Another was uh, the, the, the well-known Hebrew heritage site of Shechem. And the last one was on the, on the west side of the uh, Jordan was uh, Hebron, where several of the patriarchs were buried. On the east bank of the Jordan was uh, Bezer to the south, Ramot, and then Golan up at, the, up at the top. By the way, Golan. If that last name sounds a little bit familiar, it ought to. The famous Golan Heights that Israel won from Syria is that place. And naturally, the enemy wants to possess it again. And Israel's prime minister seems absolutely determined to give it to him. Doesn't it just figure 
that five out of the six biblical cities of refuge are today reckoned by the Arab world, by the UN, and our USA government as rightfully belonging to the Palestinians. I just don't think the Lord's impressed with those decisions. Let's move on to Joshua 21. Joshua 21. Then the leaders of the ancestral clans of the Levites approached Eleazar the Cohen, the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the leaders of the ancestral clans of the tribes of the people of Israel. It, it was at Shiloh, Shiloh, of the land of Canaan, that they spoke to them, and they said, Adonai ordered through Moses that we be given cities to live in with the surrounding open land for our livestock. So out of their inheritance, the people of Israel gave the Levites the following cities with the surrounding open land. The lot came out for the families of the Kahati. Okay. The descendants of Aaron the priest, who were the Levites, received a lot by lot 13 cities from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The rest of the descendants of Kahat received by lot 10 cities from the families of the tribes of Ephraim and Dan and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The descendants of Gershon received by lot 13 cities from the families of the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the half-tribe of Manasseh over in the Bashan. Now the descendants of Merari, according to their families, received 12 cities from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. The people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites these cities with the surrounding open land as Adonai had ordered through Moses. They gave from the tribe of the descendants of Judah and from the tribe of the descendants of Simeon these cities here mentioned by name. They were for the descendants of Aaron, the families of Kahati, who were among the descendants of Levi, because theirs was the first lot. They gave them Kiriat Arba. This Arba was the father of Anak, Hebron, in the hills of Judah with the surrounding open land. But the fields and villages of the city they gave to Caleb, the son of Yephune, as his possession. Then again, to the descendants of Aaron, the Kohen, they gave Hebron with its surrounding open land, a city of refuge for the killer. Libna with its surrounding open land, Yatir with its surrounding open land, uh, Esht Moah with its surrounding open land, Holon with its sur uh, surrounding open land, Debir with its surrounding open land, Ain with its surrounding open land, Utah with its surrounding open land, and Beit Shemesh with its surrounding open land, nine cities out of the, these two tribes. Out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with his surrounding open land, Geba with its surrounding open land, Antot with its surrounding open land, and Almon with its surrounding open land, four cities. All the cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priest, numbered 13 cities with their surrounding open land. The families of the descendants of Kahat, who were Levites, that is, the rest of the descendants of Kahat, received the cities of their lot. Out of the tribe of Ephraim they gave them Shechem with its surrounding open land in the hills of Ephraim, and the city of refuge for the killer. Gezer with its surrounding open land, Kitzvayim with its surrounding open land, and Beit Horon with its surrounding open land, four cities. On the tri out of the tribe of Dan, Elfkeh with its surrounding open land, Gibton with its surrounding open land, Ayalon 
with its surrounding open land, and Gat Rimon with its surrounding open land, four cities. Out of the half tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its surrounding open land, and Gat Rimon with its surrounding open land, two cities, all the cities of the families of the rest of the descendants of Kahat numbered ten with their surrounding open land. Now to the descendants of Gershon, of the families of the Levites, out of the half tribe of Manasseh, they gave Golan in Bashan, with its surrounding open land, the city of refuge for the killer. Be'eshtara, with its surrounding open land, two cities. And out of the tribe of Yisachar, Kishon, with its surrounding open land, Dovrat, with its surrounding open land, Yarmuth, with its surrounding open land, and Ein Ganim, with its surrounding open land, four cities. Out of the tribe of Asher, Mishal, with its surrounding open land, Avdon, with its surrounding open land, Helkat, with its surrounding open land, and Rehov, with its surrounding open land, four cities. Out of the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh, in the Galilee, with its surrounding open land, the city of refuge for the killer, Hamot Dor, with its surrounding open land, and Kartan, with its surrounding open land, three cities. All the cities of Gershuni, according to their families, were 13 cities with their surrounding open land. To the families of the descendants of Merari, the rest of the Levites, out of the tribe of Zebulun, Yochneam, with its surrounding open land, Kata, with its surrounding open land, Dimna, with its surrounding open land, and Nahalal, with its surrounding open land, four cities. Out of the tribe of Reuben, Beitzer, with its surrounding open land, Yachza, with its surrounding open land, Kedmot, with its surrounding open land, and Nefaat, with its surrounding open land, four cities. Out of the tribe of God, Ramot, in Gilead, with its surrounding open land, the city of refuge for the killer. Machanaim, with its surrounding open land. Heshbon, with its surrounding open land. And Yasser, with its surrounding open land, four cities. All of these were the cities of the descendants of Merari, according to their families. The rest of the families of the Levites, their lot totaled twelve cities. So all the cities of the Levites, 48 cities with their surrounding open land, are to be in among the lands possessed by the people of Israel. These cities, each with its surrounding open land, thus is to be with all of these cities. So Adonai gave Israel all the land, which he swore to give to their ancestors. They took possession of it and lived in it. Then Adonai gave them rest all around according to everything he had sworn to their ancestors. Not a man from all their enemies stood against them. Adonai handed all their enemies over to them. Not one good thing that Adonai had spoken of to the household of Israel failed to happen. It all took place. Okay, we're going to finish up this chapter today, so hang in there with me. Here we watch the allotments, not just of the six cities of refuge now, but of 42 more cities that when we add it all together, we come up with 48 that belong to the Levites. Now, some commentators see this as the Levites coming forward and demanding their cities because Joshua and the 12 principles were lax in giving it to them. But I don't think that's at all implied. The Levites were to get cities. Important. Not territory. So the territory had to first be secured before the Levites could ever be given their cities. Recall that the twelve tribes had to fight for their land. Even after Joshua's combined Israeli military finished off all those major 
Canaanite coalition armies, most of the territorial allotment still had significant pockets where the Canaanites still held sway. So part of the responsibility of each of the tribes who took their land inheritance was to finish conquering it. There was one notable exception to that rule. The Levites. The Levites weren't to be engaged in the battle for Canaan. They were God's servants. They were set apart for this holy duty. Further, since they were not to do military service, whatever land they'd received for their use had to already be conquered and under Israeli control. So the timing of not receiving their cities and villages until after all the other tribes got theirs is completely logical. And in fact, as we'll find out a lot later, not all of the 48 named cities and villages that we had here were as yet even under Israeli control when they were assigned to the Levites. In fact, some of the 48 cities would never be used as Levite strongholds for, for that and for other reasons. Now, Eleazar apparently was still the high priest when the Levites were assigned these cities. And the tabernacle had been moved to Shiloh in the hills of Ephraim. Now, verse 3 makes a point that is central to the rules and principles concerning the economy of the Levites. The Levites were to get their share out of the shares of each of the other 12 tribes. Each of the other 12 tribes essentially donated some number of villages and cities to the Levites, symbolically giving back to God a percentage of what he had given over to them. Now, when the verse speaks of the land surrounding each city, the purpose was for pasture land, not for crops. The Levites needed animals for sacrifices and to a smaller extent for food, but they weren't supposed to spend their time growing crops. The twelve tribes were supposed to supply all the Levites' needs. Although, as we read even starting in Judges, that Israel was apparently never very faithful about their responsibility to the Levites, except except maybe in spurts. So the Levites eventually did grow crops out of self-preservation. Now we're going to speed to a conclusion in this chapter because a map better shows where the Levitical cities were given... And it's better than these long and laborious word descriptions that I read to you. Okay. Note, however, that the Levites were divided into three, actually four, technically, main clans. Kohat, Gershon, and Merari. Now, the Kohat clans, called the Kohati in the complete Jewish Bible, were the first to receive their cities. Then Gershon, then finally Merari. Is there any meaning in this order? Yes, because Moses and Aaron were from the line of Kohat. And a Kohat was therefore the most dominant of the clans with the highest status. So what we see, go right all back to this tribal stuff again. What we see is that the line of Kohat branched off. Right? And it produced the line of of Aaron. All right? And of course, Aaron was the line of priests. 
Therefore, they held the highest status of all the families. The priests got 13 cities. Then verse 5 speaks of the rest, it says, of the descendants of Kohat. And they received 10 cities. Well, who were the rest of the descendants of Kohat? Moses' family. Sometimes we forget that even though Moses died, he left many descendants. And these descendants were Levites, and thus they had assignments regarding the tabernacle and its care, just like everybody else in the tribe of Levi. We read in earlier books of the Torah that the clan of Kohat was assigned the most prestigious duty of transporting the most holy items of the tabernacle. Well, now you know why. It was them that was selected. They were Moses' family. Okay. Now, here's a map that shows all 48 Levitical cities that are spread around all over both sides, notice, of the Jordan River. And now, now, the place names have changed so many times over the centuries and some locations are now ruins buried under yards of earth and no one even knows where they are, for sure. Okay. Without doubt, new towns have unwittingly been built over some of these spots. Highways have paved over some of these locations. Farmers plant fields and orchards above fantastic ancient villages that will probably never be rediscovered. One interesting case is the amazing city of Beit Shan. This enormous ruin seems to be practically unending. They keep uncovering more and more of it. The problem is, they now know that a substantial portion of that enormous ruin lays under the new modern city of Beit Shan, so there's no practical way they're ever going to unearth it without destroying blocks and blocks of apartment buildings and shopping centers. Well, the last couple of verses of Joshua 21 is among the most controversial and hotly debated in all of the Tanakh. This is because it seems to say that as of the time of the giving of the 48 cities and villages to the Levites, all the land was conquered at rest and their enemies completely subdued as planned. Well, that just isn't so, is it? All right. And, and, and verses well before this say so. So how do we deal with this? Well, we could spend an entire session here, but we won't because it's just too complex. But the bottom line is this. God did his part, even if in their disobedience, Israel didn't fully do their part. Okay. The state of Canaan at this moment in history was this. Joshua had defeated the two main coalition forces of the Canaanites. The coalition of the northern kings and the coalition of the southern kings. Enemies remained. But they were currently subdued and in no position to rally an offensive against Israel. Now, if Israel determined to confront an enemy, certainly there would be a battle. And often Israel lost a battle. But by now, and this is important, the battles were no longer between this huge unified Israeli force and a group of Canaanite kings. Instead, they were between a certain Israelite tribe and some local Canaanite leaders in their territory. 
In other cases, like with Tyre and Sidon and the Palestine, uh, rather the uh, Philistines, Israel just had no current interest in taking them on. All right? And for the most part, those three nations were resigned to Israel's tribes being where they were as long as Israel left them alone. Now we also know that Joshua and then the various tribal leaders that followed him found many of the Canaanite kings and lords who had yet to be conquered quite willing to make peace treaties with Israel. And since this offered a path of least resistance, Israel succumbed to that temptation. After all, what would you do? If the choice is between bloody battles with a formidable foe versus receiving gifts of tribute from a vassal enemy, why not just take the money and run? Okay. So this was a time of relative peace in Israel. Now for those wondering how God could allow something like this to go on, understand that God foretold Moses that this is more or less how it was going to happen. All right. Listen to Exodus 23:29. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, which would cause this land to become desolate, the wild animals, too many for you. I'll drive them out from before you gradually until you have grown in number and you can take possession of the land. God never promised Israel a smooth or a fast victory. He said that over time, the Canaanites would be destroyed. But what is also usually forgotten is that how and when and at what pace this would come about had everything to do. It was completely tied to Israel's obedience to God. And we all have a pretty good idea of just how poorly Israel fared in that regard. Nonetheless, the Lord had fulfilled all of his promises to his people. Even though enemies were still present, the land indeed was Israel's new homeland. The land was distributed now among the sons of Jacob. The Levites were given their cities to live in. The sanctuary cities were now operational. And God dwelled with them in the promised land. We'll begin chapter 22 next week.